When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture today, Professor Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, we're going, if we have time, we'll get through three topics, I hope, Tim. But what are we going to start with today? We're going to start with the line that Andrew Neil has been taking recently in the national press and elsewhere, um, various interviews, um, that um, that after really 20 years, there is actually uh, some good news out there for the idea of democracy. His basic argument, and I agree with him, is that democracy is on the march again. What we've had pretty much since the year 2000 um, is, if anything, the march of the autocrats. We've had, um, you know, we've, we've seen in, in, in Central Europe, we've had rise of, the, uh, of elements of the far right, the hard left. Um, we've, we've had a peculiar moment, for example, in Austria, uh, where elements of the populist far, far right have been in power. We see in Hungary today that lots of the leadership there um, are not wholly on board with... Um, what I would regard as the rule of law, um, a free media, um, and an on cyber democracy. We've seen um, in Turkey the rise of uh, uh, autocratic rule uh, and further afield. Um, Latin America has all kinds of challenges. We've talked many times about Venezuela. Uh, there was a time when, of course, many on the British left thought that Chavez and Venezuela was going to represent what was called 20 years ago Socialism 2.0. Um, it turned out that, that Chavez had embezzled a vast amount of money. Um, that it, you know, uh, Venezuela had become a very autocratic regime, um, and so on and so forth. We've seen the rise of China, but not only economically, also um, with all kinds of oppression, and not just oppressions of minority, but also um, the overthrowing of the previously liberal and democratic order in Hong Kong. So it's really felt like there's been a kick in the teeth. Um, almost relentlessly year in, year out, for those of us who believe in the rule of law and democracy. Um, and ironically, what Putin and the invasion of Ukraine seems to have done, well, it seems to have galvanised um, not only the West, not only NATO and bolted, bolstered NATO with the arrival of the Swedes and the Finns, hopefully joining, but it's also, um, it's also bolstered the idea of democracy, the idea of the importance of rule of law, transparency, um, of of not moving to political extremes, but actually uh, defending and promoting our core principles. So free press, free media, freedom of speech, all those things, circulating elites, have votes and make sure that they're legitimate, that they're transparent, mm. that they're truthful. And whether you look at uh, uh, the performance of NATO, 
um, the, uh, the, the unity between countries like Australia and the Five Eyes community or in the Far East, Japan, stepping up to the plate and working with partners in Southeast Asia as, and also Australia and New Zealand. You get a sense, I think, and this is a big signal for young people, the, the sort of the under 30s, you get a sense that democracy is on the march again. And I think Andrew Neil uh, has expressed this very well. I was surprised in his piece, actually he was quoting what proportion of the global population live in broadly free countries. I, I was actually a little surprised. It's only 20, 20%, 38% are under authoritarian room, and then 42% live with various restrictions which can be more or, or, or less um, serious. I can understand that Putin is uniting the world against him, but that doesn't necessarily mean that countries that aren't democratic are going to adopt democracy, does it? It might mean that they want to form alliances with democratic nations, they want to protect themselves, but why would it make them want to be more democratic? Uh, because I think it signals, it's an inflection point, it's a pivot point where I think the signal has gone out that yes, maybe only a fifth of the planet currently enjoys the sort of liberal and democratic order that we tend to pride ourselves on here, but that if you want uh, citizens who are empowered, if you want freedom of speech, if you want the underpinnings of things like the rule of law, um, then democracy is the way to go. Circulating elites, not having any particular person or tribe in power for too long is the name of the game. And I think this is important, not because it's going to manifest politically anywhere in, you know, in the immediate future, but it's an ideal that particularly younger people can aspire for to and look up to. And I think it's the inspiration or the rediscovery of the inspiration, the idea of democracy in that liberal order that, 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 that is what is roaring back. Um, before the 24th of February, you know, lots of people were making the argument, well, yes, but China has had dramatic growth and it might be an autocratic regime, but they get things done. And, and Putin with his sort of um, bizarre hybrid of, mm. of a sort of neo-religious nationalism and fanaticism. Yes, but you know, again, Russia, you know, might have lost the Cold War, but Putin's a strong leader and mm. people look up to him. Well, actually a lot of this is being swept away and it's becoming clear, I think, to the planet that this sort of autocracy um, is not the way to go. And as I say, this won't impact necessarily the next two or three years, but it will, I think, have ramifications 5, 10, 15, mm. 20, 30 years from now. It's an ideal. Okay, so perhaps the world is, is heading towards democracy, but if you look at the state of democracy, particularly, say, just take the UK and the US, are those democracy actually in, in, in a great state of health? It seems to me that many people are actually undermining democracy, undermining freedom of speech, and wanting to apologise for things that happened, well, not just decades, but centuries ago, that, that you know, we're living in a democracy that has no faith in itself. Yeah, well, you, you always have these moments, don't you? Um, there's always revision, institutional revisions, when you um, invent uh, new ways of communicating. Mm. We saw this, for example, in Europe, um, when the printing press was invented and how, to an extent, the Catholic Church, you know, lost the monopoly hold that it had had on yes. society. And, and again, in the late 19th century, um, when, um, uh, when wireless telegraphy came about, um, um, that also caused 
all kinds of upsetment. There were all kinds of moral panics in mid and late Victorian <laughs> England, partly as a result of people being able to communicate more. You know, we saw the rise of the national press before that, and then the rise of cartoons and and, and graphic artists making fun of elites. You yes. know, so, and here we are now. We've been through the world of, of of radio and television. Here we are in the world of social media, and of course, we have a debate whether people like Donald Trump should be allowed on Twitter or not. You know, what are the bounds of what is acceptable? And we might not have, have worked that through yet, and it will have an impact on public life. But um, generally, um, I think that the iterations of technology that have gone before have been positive. They have empowered people. They have led to better education, greater understanding, and those in turn have bolstered um, free speech um, and 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 more a, a more open society. So I think these the things that we're going through and have been going through for some years, um, um, uh, you know, with the technology, with things like WhatsApp, Twitter, and all the rest of it, these will play out. But I'm actually quite optimistic um, that the dust will settle um, and they will lead to better things. You know, if you look at the war in Ukraine, how much. Um, information is there about for example war crimes because of this technology because people right at a local and community level can show the world what is going on we, let's you I mean, clearly the, the catalyst for this um, latest movement is is putin and the war in ukraine i mean it, it Many young Russian people have left Russia long before this because they just couldn't stand living under the regime. So they were losing a lot of, of, of young talent. But it isn't a democratic country. Do you actually think that Russia itself will change as a result of this? I mean, it's getting harder and harder, isn't it, for the Russian um, elite to avoid the fact that they've made, a, or Putin has made an absolutely catastrophic mistake. Even, even Russian generals are appearing on television now saying it's all a mistake. Yes, and you know there was, of course, that moment. If you go back uh, to uh, the end of the First World War, there were moments when you had the Mensheviks, you had the Bolsheviks, and there were people um, in in you know there weren't just socialist revolutionaries and there weren't just social democrats, but there were also liberals and 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 huge swathes of the urban middle class and the and for example the workers who did dream. Um, of Russia becoming not only an advanced uh, and wealthier industrial society, but they also uh, hoped that it would become a democracy. They dreamt of having a parliament. Mm. And soon those hopes were, in fact, dashed on the rocks of history, as we know. But the dream lives, and the dream, of course, uh, is instilled, or, in, in, for example, uh, in, with Navalny. Um, Navalny um, has always uh, not only tried to call Putin out um, um, and, and, and been put in prison for it, but Navalny has always insisted that one day that democratic tide will sweep over Russia and that Russia will be truly liberated, not only as an industrial power, but, but as an open society. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, uh, but we can only hope. The key thing is that the, if you are educated um, and if you believe in the future and you believe in the rule of law and you believe in fairness and decency and you believe in um, 
you know all the good things prosperity and all the rest of it then i think you have to you believe in all that hardware um then you have to believe in the key program the software that will fuel it and i'm afraid that really is democracy so i, I share navalny's dream of hoping that russia to one day uh, will embrace those sort of institutional norms and those values thank you time for us to uh, change subject this episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, what are we going to have as our second subject, please? Um, very, very good article uh, by Gerard Lyons in The Telegraph. And, and, it, and, 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 it, and it's an important piece because it's called The Bank of England is Plagued by Groupthink. And this is unusual. I mean, Gerard Lyons has been one of the most... Um, uh, uh, vociferous, one of the most public-facing economists in Britain for certainly the last 10 or 15 years. I once had lunch with him and it was very enjoyable too. Um, uh, he's an extremely good public uh, uh, thinker um, and he's a very good public uh, speaker and normally uh, he's someone who as a in independent voice, you know, he's not stridently political um, or one-sided in his views. He, he, in the day, I think he did have some sympathies with New Labour. Uh, he also would have had perhaps some sympathies with Margaret Thatcher's liberalisation of the economy in the 1980s. So he's not tribal, but he is a very, very good economist and always tries to, to speak truth to power. And boy, in this article in the Telegraph of a few days ago, um, has he gone on the offensive uh, regarding the Bank of England? And also, I have to say, uh, to an extent, the Treasury, because he's arguing here um, that, that the Bank of England um, have been too insular in their thinking, they've been too elitist, uh, that they haven't uh, had their radar sweep on sufficiently, not only in the world of ideas, but but uh, proactively preparing for what many of us have known for some time would be uh, inflation, and inflation not just as a result of the sort of international shenanigans that we mm. see going on today, but also QE, you know, is a monetary phenomena, and inflation is usually a product of, of, of monetary phenomena. And, and what Gerald Lyons has called out, he's called out uh, the Bank of England for being too slow, he's called out for the Treasury and Treasury Ministers for talking too long about higher taxes. And basically, he's calling out the incoherence, the economic incoherence um, that, 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 that you've often heard from these, well, these people and these institutions in recent years, and the devastating impact that that's going to have not only in the economy, but as society at large. And it's, I think, a really good critique. Simon, you and I have long argued that um, 
that, that, that too much modern economic thinking is dominated by traditional forms of Keynesianism. And there are lots of other schools out there. There are the Chicago School of the Monetarists, there are the Neo-Keynesians, people like Steve Keane, who I know you've interviewed many times before. Mm. And there's also, of course, the good old really radical free market economists, the Austrian School. All these schools have very powerful critiques of, of modern finance, of 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 um, of of uh, fiscal affairs, and of course issues like inflation, you know, the, the world of money and banking, and we don't teach these schools enough in our schools and our universities, and um, and too many of our elites in the key institutions, the Treasury and the Bank of England, are too insular, they're too narrow-minded in their thinking, and boy, is reality starting to call them yeah. out. And yes, I, I which yeah. was very brave. It's yeah. a good piece. Yes, it's interesting. It's almost opened a, <laughs> um, a, a, the floodgates, hasn't it? Because there are many other people now ha having a go. There's an interesting piece by Evan Ambrose Evans Pritchard, yes. uh, again in the Telegraph, um, pointing out, as you say, I mean, inflation is, you know, it, it, it is a monetary phenomenon. And the monetarists have been right, according to Evans Pritchard, every major turn. Um, uh, that contrary to what people say, many of the monetaries were not necessarily against QE originally. They felt the system actually did need it. But that recently, they they were the ones who called it in advance. They're now the ones who, who for two years have been saying the spy money is actually diminishing. You must not, as the, as it's quite clear we're heading for a recession, you must not now start raising interest rates because what will happen is pretty much the same as happened with the... the um, uh, the great um, stock market crash in 1929 in the, in, in, in the States. You're putting the brakes on when the car is is already grinding to a, a halt. And they have been calling it out this name. So clearly, Ambrose Evan Pritchard and others are, are very worried that the Bank of England and the Fed are going to do exactly the wrong thing, just as they did at the time of the financial crisis, slam the brakes on um, and kill the economy stone dead. Yeah. And of course, uh, there is this argument. Um... Uh, that to an extent the the central bankers and, and and the system more broadly has checkmated itself because if uh, it was to uh, raise interest rates and 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 the cost of money was to be more appropriate to balance capital formation and savings with the requirements of for investment and expenditure, well, you raise interest rates. Boy, does that have a huge impact on individuals in the private sector, but it will also have a devastating impact on the public purse because we're so indebted. Yes. You know, if you owe more than two trillion and you raise an interest rate by one percent, well, you know, you are, for example, you are starting just in your interest yes. payments to cut, for example, yes. most fees of the Department of Education. Yes. So they are they are to an extent potentially checkmating themselves. And why are we so so indebted? We're indebted because at the time of a debt crisis. 2007 2008 what was their the solution more, yet more debt you talk about all these different mon um, economic schools was there any economic school that had textbooks saying in the year of 2007 8 tell you what you keep interest rates absolutely on the floor for the next 15 years and there will be no ill effects yes exactly i mean how can people in charge of money um distort the actual price of money for so long how come nine people and as amber evans pritchard points out you know the central banks are in charge of of money why isn't there a single monetarist on the bank of england's monetary policy committee yeah yeah well of course there were there have been people 
um, who, who it turns out are, are sympathetic to what you're saying uh, and who are actually quite vociferous. One of them, of course, is Mervyn King, the former governor, yes. who, wrote, who wrote a fabulous book making exactly the point you're making called The End of Alchemy, mm -hmm. where he basically pointed out that, that many central bankers, not only in Britain, but elsewhere, and economists are too narrow in their thinking. And, yes, and he's been very critical recently as well, hasn't he? And yes. Very critical. And there are other people who I think are inclined to this view and have argued um, for a long time for interest rate rises, you know, people like Andrew Sentence. Um, but, but the point is well made. And the point is that for too long, um, these institutions have suffered from groupthink and um, they're being called out and they're being called out by reality. How bad it will get, we, we, we wait to see. It's very difficult to predict. But one thing I do think is looming. I do think that at some point in the next 10 or 20 years, um, it is going to be foist upon all of us to have a serious uh, 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 and global review of what we mean by money and banking. Uh, you know, we've, we've been there before, Simon. You know, we've, we've had these conversations in the West before, uh, Bretton Woods and then the post-Bretton Woods world. Um, I think that one of those really big moments is looming. But to have that, um, you have to have a crisis. Um, the other thing I would say is um, I, I tend to agree with the Nobel laureate in economics, Friedrich Hayek, um, and, and his tutor, von Mises, who would point out to us if they were part of this conversation, that it's not just that inflation is always a monetary phenomenon, but it is that to understand inflation, you have to understand that it's also what Hayek called a hidden tax. If, if you just had inflation at three or four percent a year, well, over a decade, you are by definition mm. eroding people's savings of 30 or 40 percent. However hardworking they've been, mm. how successful they've been, if they've been thrifty, if they form some capital, um, there is to an extent uh, a, a very underhand and discreet robbery, a theft that's going on. It is a form of tax. So um, this is an enormous subject. And the last thing I'm going to say on it is that often you can read the history books and if you read the subtext of what is really going on, we talk about the rise of Hitler, you know, but then the economists will point out, yes, we well, couldn't have had it without the Wall Street crash of 29 or the German hyperinflation in the early 20s. Often boom and bust cycles and often inflations are more powerful explainers of real history, conflict, personalities, um, you know, armies marching, the most mainstream economists, uh, sorry, most mainstream historians, I think, understand or often are willing to accept. So this can be not just important to our society and to our economy, but it can be the stuff of history as well. Okay, Jim, time for us to change and look at our final topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I am in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what, what have we chosen for our final topic? Um, so uh, the final topic um, uh, is a headline in the national press, um, an article by Robbie Collin, Mark Monaghan, uh, Neil McCormack and Alistair Souk. And this article is headed why the 1990s 
were the last golden age of culture. And the reason I have um, lasered in on this article was because about three weeks ago, my 16-year-old daughter said to me that she thought that the last really good age of creativity, art, and particularly she was thinking, I think, of music, was the 1990s. And, and that really struck me as, as significant because normally when you're a teenager, um, the music you come to love and the art you come to love is often, you know, the sort of the baggage you, you pick up mm. in your teenage years. You know, I remember um, my parents sort of came of age and were dating and, 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 and getting out there in the 1950s. And so they, you know, <laughs> no surprise, my mum loved Elvis and they loved rock mm. and roll. And then that bled into their appreciation of the Beatles in the 60s. I was born in the 60s and sort of came of age and dated and went out there in the 80s. So I love 1980s music. Um, and, and it really hit me, you know, when you have someone who's 16, um, but they don't really uh, uh, like um, the, the pop music and the stuff that's out there in their time, mm -hmm. then, then you, you slightly scratch your head. But she made the argument that, that really there isn't much out there at the moment. There are a few big names, but there's no sort of unifying sort of crest of a wave. There's no great profound uh, cultural delight. And, and so I sort of tucked that in my back pocket and then, then I chanced across this article in um, the Telegraph. And this article I think makes a really powerful point that, you know, the 1990s was a bit of a golden age <coughs> um, in art. You know, <coughs> you had um, uh, Damien Hirst and and um, you had all kinds of artists in the East End of London. Hackney was opening up, you know, in Berlin. The Berlin Wall had obviously come down and, and East Berlin became an extraordinary haven uh, for art. Um, in comedy, you know, there was huge... Jack D, Eddie Izzard, Lily Savage, um, David Baddiel, um, Alan Partridge, Steve Coogan, you know, these wonderful characters. Um, in film, you know, the, 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 this was the golden age of, of the Richard Curtis movies, Four Weddings and a Funeral, you know, all kinds of stuff. Troubles, music, troubleshooting, yeah. Exactly, in music, yep. you know, it was a sort of renaissance. It was Oasis, the Spice Girls, Radiohead. Train spotting. I mean, it was a troubleshooting. So I'm thinking, train spotting. I apologize. Good gracious, my brain's gone. Yeah. But there really was, uh, uh, you know, it was a very uh, notable age. And um, yes, there's comedy out there, and yes, there's music, but I, I don't think that. Um, it, 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 it's as great. And of course, it reminded me that you do have these eras. Um, the, the, the Edwardian period wasn't exactly a high point in terms of art and culture in the United Kingdom. But the 1920s, boy, was that a decade, particularly for, for music, you know, the age of the flappers and, yes. and the Bentley boys and all kinds of characters. And it, and it manifested in fashion, in music, in art. It was a golden age, both here, Paris, um, and, and just before that in, in, in Vienna. Um, uh, then the 1950s in the United States, it was a golden era, magical time, the 1960s and the early 70s, London, the King's Road, Chelsea, the Beatles, the Who, you know, you name it. The 80s was great. The 90s was superb, I think. But 
however much I am, this is what I notice with young people, trying to grasp and, and tease out of what's been great in the last 20 years, um, I am slightly depressed at the, um, at, 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 at the scratching of head that goes on. So what I notice is that often um, periods of great renaissance and advancement in culture, they often come perhaps on the back of periods of upsetment and turpitude. You know, um, uh, the 1920s, great upswing in culture, mm. uh, upswing in culture, perhaps partly as a result of a reaction to the adversity of the First World War, similar, the Second World War, then bleeding into all that new spirit in America, and then later London, that post-war renaissance. Um, then there was the economic crisis of the of the 1970s, which was, I think, beautifully captured in its own way um, um, by you know um, the Sex Pistols and, and and the punk genre. That was the music, I think, of uh, socioeconomic crisis. But ca then came the explosion, you know, the Renaissance, the the new romantics, and and all the wonderful music of the 80s. Um, I think a lot of bands, people like Oasis from Manchester, were very much a sort of new labour reaction against Thatcherism um, and, and the sense of crisis that Thatcherism perhaps had caused parts of particularly the north of England. But then things settled down and British politics and life became quite consensual um, in, in the noughties uh, and beyond. And we haven't quite had, I don't think, the, the sort of crisis and the firmament from which um, major cultural break breakthroughs come come through. So my conclusion is, I think I agree with my daughter, it's been relatively dull in the last 20 years, but the good news is, um, if, if we're gonna have a sort of economic meltdown or a sort of crisis or a, or a dreaded inflation, then there are reasons to be cheerful. This should bleed through to the cultural world um, art, fashion, music, and something <laughs> new and exciting should eventually be born. Okay, well, we shall hold on to that while we're queuing for our food, <laughs> the food bank. Thank you very much indeed. That's uh, Professor Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be joining me, Simon Rose, at the same time in a fortnight's time. Thank you very much indeed, Tim. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.